All right, I invite you now to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 as we read the account of the temptation of our Lord. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for placing it in Scripture that we might know more about our Lord, more about our enemy, and even more about how we may resist him. Grant that we would be faithful stewards of your word. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are at the temptation of Jesus. This passage is included in each of the three synoptic gospels, which I'll explain in a moment, but it is not found in the gospel of John. That does not mean it didn't happen or that John was not aware of it. No, the synoptic gospels are so called because they see along a similar line. They see along a similar plane. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, focus and emphasize the humanity of Jesus. 
Whereas John, if you, even a cursory reading of John, it's a very different feeling gospel from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. That's because John's burden is to focus on the deity of Christ. And so it makes sense, since we know that God cannot be tempted to sin, it makes sense that in a gospel that focuses on his deity, John would have not seen the need to include it in his gospel. Whereas in gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the emphasis is on his humanity, how Jesus came as a man to save men and women. How in a gospel centered around focusing on that, you would want to include the temptation of Christ so that it is driven home to each of us. That where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where each of us fail, Christ succeeded. That we might understand and appreciate when the word of God tells us that we have a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in every way like us, yet is without sin. That we might better understand that. And so this passage is included for our edification that we might marvel at the ministry of Christ. Having just been baptized prior to beginning his preaching ministry, he has one test, and that is he must go be tempted in the wilderness by the evil one. Now this passage here and in Mark state that the three temptations so recorded occurred at the end of the 40 days. That's actually what Luke says too, but Luke includes a, another detail. If you look at Luke chapter 4 verse 2, actually I'll read verses 1, 2, and 3. Here's what Luke says. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was thirsty. Or, I'm sorry, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And so Luke makes the note that while these three temptations basically amount to the final offensive, you should, not under, you should not forget the fact that this entire period of 40 days was a time of temptation. Understand that. There are many inducements in the world to sin. Temptation can come from sources internal, namely our flesh, but they can also come from sources external, the world and the devil. In this case, in Jesus' case, he has no internal inducement to sin. He does not have a sinful nature that is inclined to disobey. But he still, he still is exposed to the external inducements from the world and the devil. Though scripture does not speak to it, the fact that the Bible makes it clear that Jesus' uh, growing up years were normal 
If Jesus was around other kids, he was, I, I, I can almost, I, I can't say it with scriptural authority, but common sense tells me Jesus was goaded and, and, and hounded by other kids to say and do sinful things regularly growing up. Come on. You and I did it all the time. Our kids do it, right? Even as a parent, I mean, I should be ashamed to say this. I try to, I, when my kids especially were, were younger, I would find delight in telling them to say something stupid. Okay? And I'm not the only one, I suspect. I'm just the guy up front, you know, so you can judge me. But, okay, so Jesus experienced this his whole life. Because we all do. Yet he was without sin. But, but here... Here he experiences something that I would dare say perhaps most of us, most humans don't experience. And that is, fresh on the heels of the highest approbation, he's baptized. This is his ordination service, so to speak. And fresh on the heels of the highest approbation where where the Father speaks audibly from heaven, commending him. And the Spirit visibly descends upon him. How much more approbation can you get? Wow. So it makes sense that fresh on the heels of the highest approbation, if he's going to be tempted, it's going to come from the arch enemy himself. And so Jesus does battle, so to speak, with the devil himself. What a threat. And so this passage here, it sheds a little light on what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. We just said the Lord's Prayer. One of the petitions, lead us not, what? Into temptation. But look at Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, what? To be tempted. So two things. One, understand that when Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation. He says so. Because he has experienced the power and the pull of temptation. So he says it as a sympathetic high priest. Second, understand that Jesus tells us to pray to be not led into temptation. Precisely because for our sakes he was. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. This, this test was a great deal. We are taken back sometimes by the fact that God tempts no one, but God does test. And that word tempt, that word test, guess what? It's the same word in Greek. So God doesn't but God does, what's the difference between a temptation and a test? The intent of the one doing it. 
So the Spirit leads Jesus. Yes, the Spirit leads Jesus. Remember, as we said last week, Jesus did his ministry in total dependence upon the power and enablement of the Spirit, the same Spirit that's within you. The Spirit leads him to be tempted. God does not tempt Jesus, but this is a test that Jesus must go through. The devil, however, is seeking not to help Jesus become an obedient son, a faithful, uh, a, a faithful Messiah. No, the devil in his intent and desire is to undermine and destroy. That's why this is simultaneously a test and the devil's temptation. These three tests, these three trials, I should say, these three temptations, they go along the, the line of what John, the apostle, tells us in 1 John 2, 16. Human inducements tend to, be, to run along one of three lines. You have, the, you, you, you have the lust of the flesh, which is typically understood as just base carnal desires, for your, your base carnal appetites across a host of subjects. Then you have the lust of the eyes, which all that you cast your eyes upon and your insatiable craving for more or for something that you don't need, but, 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 your, but, but, your, but your appetite for more suddenly is inflamed and you want. And then, of course, there's the pride of life. These three things were present in Satan's temptation to Eve. And what's remarkable is that Satan's temptation to Eve follows very similar lines to his temptation of Christ. And so we're going to go through the temptation of the temptations that he that that he seeks to uh, by which he seeks to get our Lord to sin. And then we're going to get to the applicable stuff, okay? So keeping in mind, striking parallels between what the devil said to Eve and what the devil says to Jesus. And that's important because Jesus is showing that he is the faithful Adam. He's the faithful man who will redeem those whom are his by covenant, so first is the temptation to be dissatisfied with God's provision and plan. Right? So go, go, back to, go back to the garden. In the garden, they had everything they could possibly want. Everything. And what does the serpent say to the woman? Did God really say you can't eat? of any of the trees in the garden. Okay. Is that an honest, fair question? No. Uh, understand the devil is really good at what he does. Questions can be subversive. And this question is not a good faith question. This question is intended to 
conjure up feelings, because we oftentimes act out of feelings. As much as we Presbyterians like logic, the base human fact is we typically act out of feelings. That's why we try so hard to get the mind to regulate the feelings, because we will act out of feelings nine times out of ten. That's just the way people are. And so the devil is seeking to conjure up feelings that God is is not taking care of me. I have real needs. I need nourishment. I need sustenance. Has Has God really said you can't eat any of this fruit? He's, what an unkind God. God's not taking care of you. All right. So what does he say to Jesus? Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days. Right? He is hungry. 40 days, by the way, is just about pushing the limit of what a human can fast without causing irreparable damage to your body. Okay? Jesus is hungry. Now, the devil comes into this moment and he says, if you are the son of God, now, does the devil have any question of whether or not Jesus is the son of God? Of course not. We know exactly what the devil is doing by dropping that if you are at the beginning. We do it all the time. When we are trying to goad, when we are trying to to, to get someone to do something, we throw out the prove it. That's how temptation, that's how the tempter works. Jesus is in a weakened state. Jesus If you are the son of God, of course he's the son of God. If you are the son of God, you you have the power to turn this bread, these stones into bread. What's, What's going on here? Well, the Lord, your father, has brought you out here. And here you are on the verge of death. And you have the power to provide for your real needs. Needs that will keep you alive. Just exercise the prerogative that is rightfully yours. And take care of your physical needs. Because they're needs. Because obviously... Your father doesn't care that you're on the verge of dying. That you're pushing the boundaries of what a human can endure without irreparable physical harm. Do you see how the the words are different? But it's based out of the same temptation to be dissatisfied with God's provision and plan. What it is, it's a temptation to put one's, to prioritize one's physical interests, physical needs over and above the spiritual. My physical life matters. My well-being matters. I must survive. It's, It's the temptation that has led to so much compromise throughout history, in the church. 
It's the temptation that has led us to shipwreck and abandon our faith. And the, the correct response when someone says, I must eat, the correct response from Scripture is, must you? Obedience is to be preferred over life itself. Which is why Jesus, in his response to Satan, in his weakened, semi-delirious state, his response is to quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8 in a section where Moses is recounting their wanderings. And he's reminding the people of how the Lord led them through the desert. And that after hunger, he gave them manna, supernatural sustenance, to drive home the point that our lives, that our well-being, that we are sustained by the word of God. In other words, maintaining obedience to God needs, must mean our number one priority. Which is why Jesus will say, he who loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. But he who seeks to save his life will lose it. There's a way that seems right to the flesh and the devil plays on it. But mind you, obedience must take precedence over physical survival. Okay? The second temptation is to doubt the word of God. It says that the devil set him on the pinnacle of the temple. It could be that Jesus physically wandered out from the wilderness, wandered into Jerusalem, and then scaled the building. Wow, look at what's that dude doing? It's possible. Or it could be, which I think is similar to the next one, that, he, that Satan caused a hallucination. That Satan transported him there mentally. But whatever. He's on the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil quotes scripture. Devil, Satan quotes from Psalm 91. And he pulls from verses 11 and 12. The devil says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He left out the next part about crushing the serpent, because, you know, <laughs> okay. And on one level, the devil's hermeneutic is ridiculous. That as a hermeneutic, uh, he woodenizes poetry and absolutizes the, the metaphor and then throws it at Jesus. If this is really true, then, 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 then practically speaking, commit suicide. 
This Psalm 91 isn't a messianic psalm. The psalm is about the general provision and protection that the Lord gives to those who are trusting him and walking in faithful obedience to him. And the devil twists and pulls and extracts and says, Jesus, put yourself in needless harm's way to put God on the spot and preempt his action to save you. What's he saying for real? Well, Edmund Clowney, a, a theologian author, said this. He, paraphrased, he paraphrased Satan's temptation to Eve this way. Eve, eat. You will not surely die because God has lied to you. And to Jesus, again, he's paraphrasing the devil. Jesus, jump. You will not surely die unless God has lied to you. Both to Eve and to Jesus, he tempts us to doubt the word of God. To put God on the spot to force his hand, so to speak, to, for him to be found faithful and true. And Jesus replies with Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In this temptation to doubt the word of God, to Eve, he straight up denies the word of God. To Jesus, he twists and distorts the word of God. In either case, he's handling, he's, he's interacting with the word of God. And so for us, to us, the temptation to doubt the word of God can sometimes come in the form of a straight up denial of what God has said, a denial of what God has promised a denial of what God has threatened or offered, whatever it may be. Or it can come in the more nuanced form. And, and this is how it comes often, most often, I think, to Christians. Uh, is my understanding of what God said correct? It, it, it's nuanced because it's not on the flat, it's not on the face of it denying it pretends to care what God has said. Like he's, he's someone to be honored and we want to get what he said right. For maybe you've just misunderstood what God has said. So you're still genuflecting before the idea that his word is to be honored. And maybe it's, maybe it's not God who's lied. Maybe it's just you who's misunderstood. And that's, go, that's going on in churches all across. The, the easy issue is the issue of homosexuality. Maybe, maybe the Christians have just misunderstood for 2,000 years. The third temptation is the temptation to desire an easy path to glory. The third temptation, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Okay, there's no mountain so high that you can see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Which is why this was very clearly 
a hallucination or some sort of vision or some, some sort of mental picture, okay? But just imagine as if the world's empires could be presented from one location, and you see, and the devil says, these I will give to you if you will but worship me. To Eve, what did he say? You shall be like God. To Jesus, he says, all these are mine and I will give them to you if you will but worship me. In both cases, it's a temptation to want to take and receive glory the easy way. You see, man in our fallen state, seeking to be like God, has great hubris. But did you know, did you know that the long story, the long game of God's plan is that you and I, those of us who are being who, who, who have been saved and are being saved, did you know that what Satan said to the woman, you shall be like God, did you know that in God's perfect timing and plan, we will be like God? Did you know that? God's word says that. That's the point of, sanct that's the point of sanctification. And we get to glorification. In fact, 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has, yet, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, what? We shall be like him. Whoa. In the same way. So the devil is offering now a promise to give them the goods of something that God's going to give Anyway, in time, the devil is offering Jesus now all dominion and authority over the world. Now, if you will but worship me. Fast forward 24 more chapters through Matthew. Jesus rises from the dead. He's, he's spent his time with the disciples and he's, and he's getting ready to ascend to the Father. And what does he say to the apostles? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. So the devil is trying to entice Jesus to take something that God has planned for him anyway. But what's the difference? Well, if Jesus is here and all authority in heaven and on earth is here, the devil's offering Jesus direct line. But we know from Scripture what's God's plan entail. There's Jesus here. Here's authority on heaven and on earth. But first, there's the cross. There's a life of obedience and sacrifice and suffering and hardship. And once you go through that, Jesus, 
then you get all glory, laud, and honor. And so what the devil is offering first to Eve and then to Jesus is the easy way. A theology of glory, as Luther would call it, that omits the cross. Brothers and sisters, the devil wants to try to offer you something that God in his perfect timing has planned for you anyway. But God wants to take you the route that will bring you maximal enjoyment of what he has in store. The devil knows that instrumental, that key to God's plan for you is not just the end state, but it's the route, the road to get there. And the devil knows that by trying to cut that out, he has fundamentally undermined God's purpose and plan for you. And so Jesus, at this, his response turns sort of angry. And I like it. Because he addresses the devil by name. Satan, this is the first time he's called Satan here, by the way. Satan, be gone. For you shall worship the Lord your God. In him only shall you serve. And then Satan goes to await a more opportune moment. All right. That's the temptation of Christ. For us briefly, because we're running out of time. Sorry. This is a great passage. Please bear with me. Okay. For us, a few points of observation. Note first the occasion of temptation. It comes right on the heels of the highest approbation, the highest affirmation, okay? This is, this is not grasping at straws. It's, it's a known phenomenon, okay? You can expect that after you have attained some lofty height that the devil's going to be fast on your heels, okay? So watch out. You can expect him to strike hard, to try to take you down a peg, to take you down a notch after you've experienced some victory, some attainment, some accomplishment, okay? Second, notice the context of temptation. He's in the wilderness and he's having fasted for 40 days. In other words, he's in a weakened state. Temptation comes when we are vulnerable, Understand, make no mistakes, have no delusions, illusions. The devil is a hunter. He is a predator. And when he is seeking you out, you are a target. You are prey to him. Okay? He means you all the malice that Ted Bundy met. He means you all the malice in the world. Okay? And he will seek you when you are most vulnerable. Jesus was out 40 days. He was vulnerable as he was ever going to be. 
Sin and the temptation to it seeks you when you are most vulnerable. And there are many forms of sin. There are many expressions it can take. And I don't need to elucidate them all. But I think you understand that point. Understand vulnerability. Embrace yourself. Second, understand a little bit about the enemy. He's called the devil. In this passage, he's called the devil, which means the accuser. And he's called the tempter because he tempts. Understand that he, he is a fair-weather friend. He will try to get you to do something, and then the moment you do, he's the one who snitches on you. And you're like, wait, wait, I just did what he said. And that doesn't work with God's, in God's economy. You are responsible for your choices. But the devil is both the tempter. He wants you to do something. He's wanting you to fail. And then he will accuse you before God. But then when he's addressed by Jesus as Satan, that means adversary or enemy. And that's the basic attitude you need to have towards the devil is that he is in an adversarial relationship with you. Even when he comes up alongside you and you've been mistreated by somebody, someone has said or done something wrong, they've slighted you, they've not given you the attention you deserve, they've not given you the recognition you deserve, they, they're, they're, they, they, maybe they've hurt you or slandered you, they've wronged you, whatever it is, and he comes up beside you and puts his arm around your shoulder. Oh, that's so, that's too bad. Come, come now. Understand, he doesn't mean it. He sees vulnerability in your prey. That's all you ever are to the devil is prey. Notice the MO of the tempter. The modus operandi. Okay? He does not have your best interests in mind. He makes these reasonable observations, these reasonable requests that are only intended to sow seeds of doubt, to conjure up negative emotional feelings that then other thoughts and expressions can be born out of. Then, after he's made reasonable requests or observations, he will call into question what God has said in some way, shape, or form, either brazenly denying it or twisting it or maybe making it seem like it's you who doesn't understand what God has said. All because he wants you to rebel. He will appeal to your pride. He will appeal to your desires he will appeal to your appetites. He will tell you that you deserve more. And how does Jesus battle this? I mean, you know this. How does Jesus battle? Satan, I bind you. I bind you, Satan. Does he do that nonsense? That it is nonsense. Does he do that? No. He quotes scripture. The best battle plan for dealing with Satan is to quote scripture. I love the fact that Jesus didn't get into a verbal sparring match with that third temptation about all the nations of the world are mine and I can give it to you. <laughs> scripture actually says that the Lord rules over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to whomever he wants. We, we, we so often assume that the devil's telling the truth here. He, he thinks he's in charge. 
But ultimately, the Lord is anyway. But Jesus doesn't get into a verbal sparring match with him to prove him right. You know, we, all of us is an inner lawyer that wants to be proven right. Jesus doesn't do that. He does not bandy wits with the arch enemy. He cites scripture. Thus proving the wisdom of his first citation. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you see that when we say we live, one of the things it means is that we are sustained in our time of trial, our time of temptation. It is the weapon that keeps Satan at bay. So brothers and sisters, whether your temptation is coming from the devil himself or one of his minions, or just from the world, which the world which in general is under the dominion of the devil, or, or from the corruption of your own flesh, understand that the same battle plan is effective. Be wary of your vulnerabilities and occasions. Understand that when that devil or that devilish figure is whispering in your ear, he does not see you as anything other than prey. And stand firm in the word of the Lord, just as our Savior did. He vanquished the devil here by his faithfulness, just like he's going to, in a few chapters, vanquish the devil by his obedience to die. Brothers and sisters, you and I are saved by Jesus and his faithfulness. He was tempted for you. He was tempted for me. So he's a sympathetic high priest, but he also shows us the battle plan for how to deal with the devil. Let us be found faithful even as he was. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. Jesus, we thank you for going through this for us, for subjecting yourself, for allowing yourself to be subjected to the temptations of the devil, for allowing your word to be twisted by his filthy mouth all for our sakes. Thank you. And thank you for giving us a battle plan of sorts that we might live faithfully as your younger brothers and sisters, as your servants. Grant, O oh God, that in all things we would be found faithful, that we would indeed seek faithfulness above even physical existence. Grant, O oh God, that your spirit would sustain us in our time of weakness that we might be held up from the devil. And we look forward, O oh God, to when you finish and perfect your work in us and we are glorified and we truly become like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.